I still invited? That's the question I want us to ask today as we get started. And I can't really think of a better question to ask in the culture, this cancel culture that we live in. Am I still invited? Because we've all felt the sting at some point in our lives of not being invited. In fact, that video is kind of funny, but it'd be a lot funnier if it didn't hit so close to home. Am I still invited? We've all felt the sting of not being invited, and a lot of us have even felt the worst thing of being uninvited. For some of you, maybe either back in the day or maybe even more recently, you were uninvited out of a dating relationship. Maybe you, you had that person in your life years ago or maybe just this last month and you thought she was the one. You thought he was the one and you were getting ready to pop the big question or maybe you were getting ready thinking to receive the big question. And for whatever reason, you were uninvited out of that relationship. Maybe you've been uninvited out of a friendship or even a group of friends. You don't know what happened. You don't know what you did. But for whatever reason, you've been uninvited out of that friendship. Maybe you've been uninvited out of a career. Maybe you worked for this company for so long and, and you've put in many hours, you were faithful, you were persistent, you were working good with them and one day they sat you down and they told you because of COVID, because of the economy, all these different excuses as to why you are now uninvited from that company and maybe even that career. Maybe... Maybe like Bill, you've been uninvited from a marriage. Maybe you've been uninvited from people in your family. The story today for us is what we were just singing. Hope has a name, Emmanuel, God with us. That God today, in spite of feeling the sting of being uninvited, at some point in our life, God still has hope for us today. I want to start in a, in a kind of a, a very common place for Christmas. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is one of the most common passages read at Christmas. In fact, for some of you, you don't even have to turn in your Bibles because you know the passage. It's memorized in your head. And I want us to look at today's passage and see what God wants to say to us through this common passage. We said this last week, but we, the fact is most of us don't need just another fact about Christmas. And that's not the intention of our series and not the intention of our time together this morning. Our desire is to not worry so much about the blank maybe on your handout this morning, but maybe looking into your heart and saying to yourself and saying to God, Lord, is there anything in my life that's blank? Is there a blank left by 2020? Is there a blank left by being uninvited this morning? So Luke chapter 2, we're going to begin reading right here at the beginning in verse 1. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now I want you to think for just a minute about how ordinary and underwhelming this story starts. I mean, have you ever thought about that? We've read these passages for years. Most of you know these passages really well. And you can even kind of finish my sentences as I'm reading this. But have you ever thought about how absolutely ordinary this story starts I mean Jesus God promises us Jesus all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 so the first three chapters of the Bible he's promising hey there's going to be one that comes this Messiah he's going to come and he's going to fix everything that we humans messed up And then between that time and this time there's 700 over 700 prophecies about this one that's going to come. And then Luke 2 hits. And we are on the cusp of God coming and wrapping himself in human flesh. The glory of God coming down to earth. And the story starts. Caesar wants you to be registered. Think of how uneventful that is. I mean, that's like starting a story like this. It's April 15th. It all started on April 15th. Frank had not finished his tax returns yet. I mean, that is just the most uneventful way to start a story. Or it's like they, it all started when they went to go renew their driver's license. I mean, it's as normal and underwhelming and mundane as possible. And it's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, we sing songs about Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem. But the equivalent of that, the ancient equivalent of that is really us just singing song about someone going to the DMV. I mean, that's literally what it is. I mean, no one's writing songs about going to the DMV. And this is where we find the story of Christmas starting. It starts in the ordinary and the underwhelming. And God is telling us something with this. And I don't want us to miss this point. That Christmas capitalizes on the underwhelming. Christmas capitalizes on the underwhelming. And if we were honest, for most of us at Christmas, we have had a time where we were underwhelmed. We had this idea of what this event, this memory, this thing was going to be in our lives. And we said to ourselves, this is going to be the coolest thing ever for my family or for you know, our community or whatever. And we think this is going to be amazing. And then when that finally happens, it sorely underwhelms us. For me, this happened a couple of years ago. We were putting our Christmas tree up. And for some of you in the room, the way you put your Christmas tree up is not that big of a deal anyway. You get your Christmas tree out, you hang ornaments. Some of you make it like a day-long or like several-day process or whatever. Um, There's a person on our staff who I won't mention who doesn't like Christmas named Wesley, I'm sorry. Um, 
Mr. Green tells me that uh, the way he used to do Christmas is he would take the Christmas tree at the end of the year with all the ornaments on it, throw a garbage bag over it, stick it out in the shed, and then when Christmas comes the next year, he just takes it out, sticks it out, and throws the garbage bag off. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, that's really, really smart. I think it's kind of grinchy myself. Sorry, bud. But the truth is, for our family, and really probably more for me than anybody, I make it a big event in our house. Everything has to be like a certain way. And those of you that know me well know I'm pretty particular and specific about specific things. And one of the things I'm specific about is we're going to do this and we're going to make a night of, uh, out of it uh, for the family. In fact, I'm so particular, I'm even embarrassed to admit this. I'm so particular that I have a specific album that plays as we start the decoration of the Christmas tree. My wife might not even know this, but I have a specific album that I like to follow when we're decorating the Christmas tree. And so I start it every year the same way. When the tree's up, I start it. And so a couple years ago, we set the pre-lit tree up. We put it all in its place. Sorry, guys, my mic's driving me crazy this morning. Uh, We put the tree in its place, and while we're putting it up, we start to hang the ornaments, just like you do every Christmas. Oh, man. I'm sorry, guys. There it goes. Sorry about that. So we're putting the tree up. We stick it up. We put it where it's supposed to go. It's a pre-lit tree. We light it up. It works great. We put all the ornaments on it. We're sitting there. As we're doing other things in the house, half the lights go out on the tree. And the music's playing. And I do what any good American dad would do to fix the tree. You can guess, right? I just start shaking it, right? I jiggle it enough, maybe it'll, maybe it'll all come back on. Guess what? More go out. By the time it's over, the tree is dead. And my kids are just looking at it, and I'm looking at it, and I can feel the pressure start to feel. That same Christmas music that brought me so much joy two seconds ago that's blowing through the house is now the biggest agitation in my life. I'm like, shut that junk off. I don't want to hear any more of that. So I jump in the car, drive to Lowe's, very angry, very frustrated, get a new tree, set it up. Two weeks later, that tree goes out. So here's the point of the story. We do this. I'm not the only one that does this. I really don't believe I'm the only one that does this. At Christmas time, a lot of things, no matter who you are, we try to find things and special moments that we can kind of have with our family. But here's the truth about Christmas. Christmas capitalizes on the underwhelming. And the paradox of Christmas is that it does not typically find us in the extraordinary measures. It normally finds us in the everyday moments. That God is not wanting to refresh for us the meaning of Christmas soaking in a hot spring in Alaska, looking at the northern lights and drinking hot chocolate. That typically God wants to remind us of the meaning of Christmas sitting in the return line at Walmart with all our kids in the buggy. This is where God wants to work. And for many of us, we miss it because we're so focused on that extraordinary moment or measure that's going to come like tomorrow. When all the while we're missing the moments that God gives us here in the everyday. 
And guys, this is a super big, important point for us to make this morning as we look towards the rest of this morning. Because this is exactly how it was for the story of Christmas the way it started. It didn't start in some extraordinary measure. It started with an everyday moment with Mary and Joseph. And so here is where the story starts. Verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, talk about not being invited, right? I mean, this is the Savior of the world coming into the world And he's not invited anywhere. There's no room for him anywhere. And this is kind of weird because you're sitting there thinking, we talked about this last week, 700 years earlier, Isaiah announces this Jesus coming. And literally, God had 700 years. He actually had eternity to figure out this and he couldn't make a reservation. I mean, seriously, God, what is he up to? God has not had a lapse in memory. It's not that God forgot to do something and it's not that God got kicked off the internet while trying to make the reservation. No, there is something specific that God is trying to tell us here in this story. And it's the main point of the morning that Christmas invites the uninvited. Christmas invites the uninvited. Invited. He shows us this with Mary and Joseph, and he's about to show us this with the shepherds. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. You know, it's interesting when we think about Christmas plays with shepherds, we kind of have this different picture in our head. For a lot of us, and we, we know this, like Christmas plays and pageants all over the world, all over the year, or all during this time of year, have a shepherd, one of our kids, dressed up in their bathrobe with a stick, and they're standing on stage. And normally, when that happens, you know what every parent does in the room? They grab their phone out, and they hit record. Because to them, that's their kid. That's this special moment. My kid gets to be a shepherd this year. That's the coolest thing to be at Christmas. In fact, we used to have the drive-thru out here and people would usually fight over that scene. They love the shepherd scene because it puts within us this, this neat little serene idea of these noble shepherds out in the pasture, you know, doing their shepherding with their fluffy little lambs. But the truth of the matter is that's not what we see in the story. In fact, at this time in history, the shepherds were on like the bottom ring of the social ladder. In fact, only lower than them were probably the lepers. So basically, if you didn't have a communicable disease, you're better than a shepherd. This is how they were viewed. They were dishonest. They were unreliable. They were unsavory. And because they worked seven days a week, which sounds great. It's like, hey, these are hard workers. No, because they worked seven days a week, their culture, they were not allowed to participate or they didn't participate in the Sabbath, which made them look unclean and unholy to everyone out there. 
That's the scene that you have. You have a scene of uninvited, the uninvited people of the world out in a field. And look at what God does in the midst of all of this. Verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. They were terrified. Now, we talked about this some last week, but God's glory has been showing up in different places all throughout history. In Genesis, it was in the garden. He was right there. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God would come through. His presence would come and walk with them in the garden. Pretty special. Fast forward several hundred years later, the Israelites were making their way through the wilderness. And what does the Bible talk about? It talks about a pillar of fire at night, a giant pillar of fire at night, and a cloud by day that would literally guide the Israelites to the promised land. And then once they get there, it settles in the tabernacle or the temple. And we talked about this last week. It settles in this one room called the Holy of Holies. And this is where God's presence was. But because of Israel's disobedience, because of their rebellion, Ezekiel tells us 500 years before this moment that God's glory leaves the temple. This is in the book of Ezekiel. God's glory leaves the temple. And so for 500 years, no glory on earth. None of that kind of God's presence and glory manifesting itself on earth. Until this night with the most uninvited people in the whole world, the shepherds. And when God shows up, they are terrified. They are filled with great fear. And this is a little rabbit trail, but I think it's a, a one that's important for us to kind of go on for just a second. When we hear that, for some of us, we struggle with that. Because it's not very PC to say that when God shows up, we're all terrified. In fact, for some of us, you're thinking, well, don't we kind of want a guy who, when he shows up, is a little more holly and jolly and kind of just makes us happy and makes us want to dance. No, we want a God that when he shows up, it is clear that he is much bigger than us, that he is more holy than us, that he is more perfect than us, that this God holds stars in his hands, that he is nothing like us. There is no rival and there's no equal. And that when God shows up to the shepherds, and really when God shows up in our lives, it puts us on our face. That our testimony in following Christ is not, well, when I was about nine years old, I went to camp, and I threw a stick in the fire, and I just felt something good. And that's my testimony. That's my faith journey. No! That when God shows up in our lives, it puts us spiritually on our face that we recognize how unholy and how uninvited we truly are in the grand scheme of things. And this is where we find the shepherds terrified on their face, recognizing their unholy and uninvited posture and nature. And here's the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Christmas is that the gospel, Jesus Christ, doesn't leave us terrified. 
He doesn't leave us in that place. Look at what it says in verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth among those with whom he is pleased. You see, the good news is that when God shows up in our life, he doesn't leave us terrified. He brings us and offers us peace. And this is the true perspective of what Christmas is. That Christmas is not about us inviting God into our little measly story. No, Christmas is about God inviting us into his grand and big and glorious story. That in his holiness and in his kindness, he invites the uninvited into the story of redemption. I love what 1 John 4, 9 and 10 says. It's gonna be here on the screen. This is how God showed his love among us. This is, this is how Christmas came right here. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God. Not that we love God, because let's be honest, we didn't do a really great job at loving God. In fact, Christmas is not our idea. It's God's idea. And the story of Christmas is not me saying to God, I have loved you so good, God. I bet you're just blown away with how much I love you. No, that's not the story of redemption. The story of redemption is that there, the reason we celebrate Christmas is because deep down we know that we could never do enough to measure up to a perfect and holy God. But Merry Christmas, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That long before you chose to move towards God, he was moving towards you. That long before the shepherds thought a thing about God and a thing about the Messiah, long before that, God was moving towards them. And this is our perspective of Christmas. That Christ invites the uninvited and also that Christmas focuses on the unimportant. That Christmas also focuses On the unimportant, look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into Bethlehem, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. There is your nativity scene right there. We know it well, right? 
Most of us, or a lot of us, probably in our house at Christmas have some kind of nativity scene. And if we don't, we know exactly what it looks like. And we can visualize where everybody's supposed to go in the scene because we put it up every year, right? So you have Jesus, right? He's in the manger and he's front and center. In fact, the star is pointing on him, right? Like if you have a star in it, it's all about this part. And, and so it should be. And then behind Jesus is your little wooden Mary figure that sits behind and she's typically in a praying, kneeling pose, sitting there praying and kneeling right behind the manger on one side. And then you have Joseph, right? Joseph is right beside Mary and Mary's here kneeling and the Joseph at our house is literally standing like this and he's got this archaic looking wooden arm just kind of like this on Mary's shoulder. And then over here, you might have some shepherds, right? You got the shepherds, you might have a cow in the background if you got a really exotic scene. And you got the shepherds and the little lambs that we talked about earlier. And then over here in this scene, for a lot of us, we put the, the three wise men, the kings, the, the magi. They're, they're up in the scene and they got their camels right over here and they're holding their gifts. And, and, and not to burst your bubble, and you probably already know this, but the magi weren't actually in this scene, right? They come later in the story, but for aesthetic purposes, we, we put them in the manger scene. I get that, I understand, and some of you can't do it. And so in your house, when you set up your nativity, you've got the magi like on the piano on the other side of the room. Because in your mind, you're thinking they have to journey through the desert of my living room floor to get to the manger. And that's all well and good. So we all kind of know the scene really well. And I want to ask you a question. Excluding Jesus, where are all the important people in the story? Excluding Jesus, where are all the important people in the story? You could say the Magi are important. A lot of, them, a lot of people call them the three kings. That's probably not true. They probably weren't kings. But here's the thing. Even if you think they were important, they weren't there. You got the shepherds over here. We're talking about them right now. They're not important. The animals and the products that they produce aren't important. You got Joseph back here, a simple carpenter, who, by the way, doesn't make it out of Luke chapter 2. In fact, Luke chapter 2 is the last time we see the simple carpenter Joseph. Most people believe, most scholars believe he died early in life. That's kind of sad. And then you have Mary, and people have tried to make Mary something she's not. You know who Mary is in this story? She is a postpartum teenage girl. And this is the scene you have, a scene with a bunch of people that aren't important, that aren't important in the story. Where are all the important people at? I remember growing up, all the way up until the point I got married, our family would go to Wilmington. We used to live in Wilmington, and every Christmas, even when we lived in Shelby, I never spent a Christmas Eve in Shelby. We were always in Wilmington, and we would always go around to different relatives and stay with them. And I remember one particular Christmas, I was very young, and we stayed at my papa's house on Christmas Eve. And I was all about some Santa Claus in my world. And so as a, as a little boy that loved Santa Claus and was excited about Santa Claus coming, I was there. 
and we were watching a Christmas movie on TV, and this was back before Netflix, and so you had commercial breaks in the middle of your movies. So go figure. And so we're sitting there and the commercial break comes on and all of a sudden the news comes on, like a newscaster comes on and they say, we have a breaking news report. And I was thinking, I wonder what this is about. And all of a sudden this newscaster says, we have just gotten Rudolph on the radar and he has just crossed into North American airspace. And I remember as a little kid, just feeling that excitement start to just bubble inside because I knew what was coming. And then the show would come back on and then the next commercial break, the newscaster would come back and he'd say, we got breaking news. Rudolph has just crossed the Virginia-North Carolina border. And that excitement just kept building. And then he'd come back again, then third newscast, the important one, and he would say, Rudolph has, we just spotted Rudolph on Highway 74. And here's what I knew at that age about Rudolph. I knew that when Rudolph was on the radar, something amazing was going to happen. And here's the truth about what we celebrate this year and what we celebrate as a church and hopefully as believers every year. We're not celebrating a flying animal on a radar. We're celebrating the fact that you are on heaven's radar. That I am on heaven's radar. That we are on heaven's radar. That God not only sees you, he loves you. And no matter how unimportant you feel, God focuses on you. He is focused in on who you are and you are on heaven's radar today. You know, it's easy for us to not really feel important. In a sea of almost 8 billion people in the world, it's easy to not feel important and the truth of the matter is, based on the world standard and based on kind of where we're at in life and, and really where we've been over the point of all of history, we're really truly not important. We're not really that important and all, and no one in this story except Jesus was important. And you see, the problem that comes in is the tendency we start to feel when we don't feel important, when we feel unimportant, you know what we do? We start to try and make ourselves into something that we're not. In fact, most people that are prideful, most people that, that want that, they're insecure about how unimportant they really feel. And so the tendency for us is to try to make ourselves up to something bigger than, than we actually are. And you know what's crazy about this? The only person in the history, in the story of the Christmas story that was by the world standard important was King Herod. He was the most important person in that entire land in the world standard of what is important. And you want to know something? He was the villain of the story. You see, here's the thing. The posture of Christmas, 
The posture that we take at Christmas is not about standing on the foundation of our accomplishments. It's not us standing and saying, oh, I'm important. Oh, God, I'm important. Thank you for seeing how important I am because I'm really important. I'm standing on my accomplishments. No, the posture of Christmas is about kneeling at the foot of Emmanuel's manger. It's about us coming to him and saying and recognizing that we are nothing like God. That we are flawed, we are weak, we are uninvited, and we are unimportant. But God loves us so much and he places value in and on our lives. And man, that is the gospel story that really inspires. That's the part of the gospel that's so inspiring to me. That despite myself, despite how unimportant I am, despite that I'm this little insignificant person that lives in Shelby, North Carolina for this season of my life, and then I'm gone off of this earth, that despite all of that, God places value on me. That is what inspires us at Christmas, and it's what inspired these shepherds. That Christmas inspires the uninspired. Christmas inspires the uninspired. Look with me in verse 17. And when they saw the place, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. Heard and seen as it had been told to them. Think about this. These initially uninspired shepherds see the glory of God and can't help but tell everybody they come in contact with. That inspiration is contagious. That it doesn't just settle with us. Think about this. These, these shepherds, they are seen by God. In and of themselves, they're unimportant, they're uninvited, but God sees them. They are on heaven's radar. And when God sees them, they begin to see God. And man, when they see God, it changes them. They don't see God in some extraordinary thing. They see God out doing the most mundane and underwhelming task they could be doing. They're out tending sheep. Mary and Joseph are going to be registered. They're all doing just everyday moment tasks. And in the midst of that, they see God. And it's so much more than them just seeing God and saying to themselves, well, that was kind of neat. That's really cool. I'm going to just log that one away in my memory bank. No. When they see God for who he is, they go. They're sent out. They go and they can't help but tell everyone else. And the plan of Christmas, the plan that God wants us to embrace this year when it comes to Christmas is the same thing. That we recognize that we are seen we are seen by a holy God and that just baffles us because we're not worth much of anything of ourselves. But we are seen by a holy and loving God and that when we are seen, we begin to see. We begin to see God's glory. We begin to see God working in our lives, not just in the extraordinary measures. We see God working in our lives in the line at Walmart. And man, when we start to see how God is working, we are sent out. 
we realize that the blessings of God don't just terminate on us, that they begin to flow through us, that God wants to do something in you and for you, but he also wants to do something through you. And this is what we see God doing. We, we, but yet for so many of us, we find ourselves this time of year just treading water, don't we? Just treading water. We've got this to accomplish. We've got this to do. We've got all these little projects. We've got all these little places to go. We've got all these little programs to be a part of. And we are just treading water, just trying to get through the year, trying to have some family joy and some family moments. And we're just treading and we are completely missing the everyday moments that God wants us to see him and share him. We just sang this song. Hope has a name. Emmanuel, the light of the world who broke through the darkness. We sing this. We, we hear these words. We believe these words. But do we really believe these words? Do we believe that hope has a name and light wants to shine through the darkness in the grocery store with the cashier we're talking to? Do we believe that hope has a name when we're at our job and we're beside that coworker that talks bad about us behind our back? Do we believe that hope has a name when we go to the restaurant and we're sitting there and the waiter has gotten our order wrong and gotten everyone at the table's order wrong? Do we believe that hope has a name, Emmanuel, and that light wants to shine in that darkness? Do we believe that hope has a name when we're at our grandmother's house and we're around that obnoxious relative that is so far from us and so far from God and quite frankly makes it difficult to be around? You see, those are easy words to sing. It's super easy to sing that. And it's super easy to just take that in for ourselves. Hope has a name, Emmanuel. I'm so glad God loves me. I'm so glad God's with me. I'm so glad I have all these great blessings in God. But man, God wants us to take that to the darkness. And this is what we see the shepherds do. You know, out of the four gospel writers, there are three gospel writers that tell the story of Christmas. You have Matthew that we shared last week. We have Luke that we're talking about today. And there was a third. John has his own version of the Christmas story, and it's different than what the other two gospel writers wrote. But in John chapter 1, I love these verses. They're going to come up on the screen. John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Listen to what John's Christmas story is. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, light is such a powerful element that we use to tell the story of Christmas. You use it in your homes with your Christmas trees and your lights outside. We use it in here. We've got lights hanging and we've got these special lights here and we have lights that go off at particular times in the songs. And really the point of all that is to just really kind of enhance and focus in on the fact that Jesus has come as the light into the world. But before LEDs, before incandescent bulbs and before neon lights, there was really only one kind of source of light other than the sun in the ancient world. And when Jesus comes on the scene and says in John chapter 8, and John says in John chapter 1, that he's the light of the world, 
When that happens, they don't think of a light switch. They don't think Jesus, the light of the world, as this little button under the Christmas tree. What they think of is they think of a flame. They think of fire because that is the source of light that the ancient world used. And when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I'm the light of the world, what they think of is a light that is essential to life and a light that is transferable. Because back in that day, if your home needed light, you didn't have a light switch. You know what you did? You went to your neighbor's house with a torch and they had some fire and you lit your torch and you went back to your house and you lit up your house that way. And an entire village, think about this, an entire village could be lit up in just a matter of minutes with one person going to another person's house and lighting a flame. And the cool thing about that is the person that lights the flame, the the fire that's already there loses nothing in the process. And this is what God is saying to us today, that the light of Christ, the light that he shines in the darkness can be my light. And not only can it be my light, it can also be my neighbor's light. And it can be that relative's light. And it can be that co-worker's light. That that same light I see as essential to life, I can transfer that light to other people so that they may have the light as well. And that is what God is wanting to say to us today. That it's so much more than us just being encouraged by how good God loves us. That's a great thing to think about. But it doesn't just end there. That we are on heaven's radar, and that's a great thing to think about. But the truth is, we're not only on heaven's radar, but here's the question I want to end with today. Who's on your radar? Who's on your radar? That video we watched, those are some messy people. Those are some uninvited type people that are quite frankly difficult to invite and difficult to love and difficult to be around. And some of you are those people and some of you were those people before Christ. But we still have a world filled with those kind of people. And we have families filled with those kind of people. And we have workplaces filled with those kind of people. And what God is saying to us today is, it's great that you know that you're on my radar, but I want you to have people on your radar. So who is on your radar today? Who is it that you need to go and share the light of Christ with? We started something yesterday. And I'm not trying to make a shameless plug for it. It's a good plug. We started something called the 12 Days of Christmas Challenge. It's on our social media stuff. And here's the thing. It's not a substitute for what God is intentionally wanting to do in and through your life and to people. What it is, is it's a springboard. It's a diving board for us to practically think of ways that we can bring light into darkness. That we can invite uninvited people into our little world. 
And so I want to encourage you. This is a great thing for families, for, for anybody in our church, but you can do this with your kids, to come along with us on this journey. We started yesterday, so you can catch up. It's super easy. It doesn't have to be done every single day in that daytime. But we want to encourage you. Come along this journey with us, and let's just get some practical things. But here's the thing. It's not about just doing that. That's kind of the invitation for the message, but it's not just that. It's looking in the everyday moments for God and what he wants to do with the people in our world that are uninvited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just, I pray, Lord, that God, we can just open our eyes, Lord. God, that we have seen you, but before we saw you, you saw us. You saw us in our uninvited and unimportant and flawed and rejected state. And God, even in the midst of that, you saw us and we were on your radar. And God, we have seen you. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that hasn't seen you, that hasn't beheld you, and for the first time today, Lord, you are beginning to open their eyes. God, I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't leave this place without talking to a pastor, talking to someone that loves you and knows you about what it means to truly follow after you, just like we saw these shepherds do. But Lord, for a lot of us, we, we know the story of Christmas. Lord, for a lot of us, we had that moment in time where you showed yourself real to us and we saw you. But Lord, you don't want to just show us yourself when we're eight years old and we, or when we're at camp. God, you want to show yourself in our lives in the everyday moments of this Christmas season. God, help us not to miss that. Help us not to miss the moments that you want to show yourself to us. And God, that you want us to be used as a vessel, as a, as a conduit of your fire in the life of someone else. God, help us not to miss those moments and those opportunities this Christmas. Father, we thank you, Lord, for everything you're going to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.